Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 398 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. Counting up to episode 400. And now, Skylab, The Astronauts, Part 3, Joe Kerwin and Jack Lausma. Of the scientist astronauts who ended up going to space, Joe Kerwin's path had the most in common with that of the first astronaut groups selected. It involved many hours in the cockpit of a military jet. Uh, born February 19th, 1932, uh, in Oak Park, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago. Uh, was accused by my big brothers and sisters. I, I'm the seventh child in the family of having uh, either caused or perpetuated the depression by my birth, but I don't think that's true. <laughs> I am a depression baby, however. And uh, although I didn't, I was too young to serve in World War II, I had two older brothers who, who did serve in that war. And it's sort of, uh, uh, I, feel, uh, I feel more and more out of it as I get older because there's so many people now who don't remember the events that were absolutely central to, to the lives of us who, uh, who were growing up in high school and in grade school during that, uh, that war. Uh, and uh, read science fiction a lot when I was a kid. Uh, of course, there was no such thing as a space program uh, in the, and I'm talking the 40s through the early 50s. Uh, uh, the first V2 rockets, I guess, appeared in the uh, in the mid 40s. But there was uh, there was no talk about sending people into space. It was all fantasy fiction. And I, and again, my uh, my nasty big brothers used to uh, say, "Oh, little Joey wants to go to the moon. Look, he's reading A. E. Van Vogt or Arthur Heinlein again." Uh, and uh, uh, so I uh, uh, went to college at, uh, at Holy Cross College in Worcester, Massachusetts as a uh, Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy with a pre-med minor and uh, liked the pre-med minor so I went on to medical school at Northwestern. Uh, we're in the mid-50s now and uh, I guess I was a, uh, I graduated from Northwestern in 1957 so I was uh, an intern uh, at the District of Columbia General Hospital in Washington, D.C. when uh, Sputnik went off. And uh, I had no, uh, no feeling of uh, uh, connection 
to the Sputnik or the space space effort uh, at that time. I was uh, merely a civilian guy going through an internship. But there was an interesting thing uh, in the 50s called the doctor's draft, the Berry Plan, that uh, was the way the military uh, uh, got their supply of uh, physicians. Uh, they gave you uh, exemptions from the draft as long as you were enrolled in a, uh, in a legitimate medical education program, including internship and including residency. Uh, and as soon as you finished it, your name went in the hopper. And if it got pulled out, you were uh, up for two years' uh, service. And uh, my name went in the hopper uh, during my internship uh, and uh, uh, was pulled out by the Navy. So I got this letter about January of 1958, I guess, saying, hello there, you have been uh, drafted and assigned to the Navy, blah, blah, blah. And I was in Washington. So I got my car and went up to 14th and I, I think it is, and to the Bureau of Medicine and Surgery and presented my letter and said, what duties have you got available? And uh, one of the several duties that they uh, offered to me was uh, the last seat in the flight surgeon school uh, that July, just after getting out of internship. Costs you an extra six months, it said, but you learn how to be a flight surgeon and you get a little flying time while you're at it. About 20 hours of uh, time under instruction and just for the experience. And if you pass the physical and, and the check, you may get the solo in the T-34. So I said, great. And uh, 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 bought my uniforms and went down to Pensacola and went through the aviation medicine and, uh, and was assigned to uh, the U.S. Marines at Cherry Point, North Carolina, 1959. Uh, and we are at the beginning of the NASA program now, uh, the height of the Cold War, uh, a time when um, it was a very uh, acceptable and patriotic thing to be in the military. Uh, uh, and I enjoyed my tour with the Marines just immensely, and they were very good to their, uh, their Navy doctor. Uh, they uh, uh, allowed me to start and taxi their fighter aircraft around. <laughs> a little bit unconventional, but the Marines were like that. They said, yeah, let's, let, let's teach the doc how to taxi, just don't take off. Uh, and so I did that, and I, the bug really bit me, and I uh, applied for a program that the Navy had had uh, for several years already uh, in which they trained a small number of flight surgeons to be naval aviators. Uh, uh, this, had, this had gotten started back in the late 30s when a number of uh, Navy flight surgeons, and aviation medicine was very new in the 30s, uh, said, we could understand this pilot business better if you train us to be pilots. And a half a dozen of them applied for that, and flight training was... Uh, pretty inexpensive and uh, didn't take too long in the 30s, so they trained these guys up to be, uh, to be pilots. And uh, then World War II happened, and at the end of the war, the Navy noticed that those people uh, had done a wonderful job through the war as flight surgeons and were in senior command positions in the Medical Corps, and uh, they said, this is a good program, we'll continue it. And about once a year or once every two years, they accept an application from a doc, and they're still doing it to be a pilot, get the full flight training, uh, fly the high-performance aircraft, and understand the environment better so that they can apply that experience to uh, uh, certifying and treating pilots. Uh, so I applied for that and was accepted, and uh, in 1961 entered flight training in the Navy uh, and uh, 
transferred from the Naval Reserve to the regular Navy in order to do that. And uh, uh, went through flight training, uh, was assigned to uh, uh, a, uh, uh, an air wing at Cecil Field, Florida, and uh, met a couple of friends among my, uh, my pilot uh, patients, if, if, if you will, one of whom was Jim Lovell and the other was Alan Bean. Hmm. And uh, one at a time, uh, both these guys came to me and said, Joe, I'm going to apply to be an astronaut. Uh, would you help me fill out my medical forms? And uh, so I did, and they were both accepted, obviously. And uh, suddenly now I had a connection, a personal connection, uh, however tenuous to what was going on in Houston. And uh, when in 1964 uh, I was uh, sitting in front of the television with my wife and uh, uh, I think it was David Brinkley, the old Huntley Brinkley show announced. And NASA has announced that it will hire scientist astronauts to go to the moon. Uh, my wife looked at me and said, you'd like to do that, wouldn't you? <laughs> I said, oh, I'm not a scientist, I'm just a doc, you know. But I thought about it and applied through the Navy. And uh, since there weren't many physicians who could pass the physical and had 2,000 hours of time in single-engine jet aircraft, uh, that turned out to be enough, and uh, I was accepted into the astronaut program in uh, 1965. Now let me see if I can cover a few details that Joe did not mention. He was born of Irish descent in Oak Park, Illinois, on February 19, 1932. Joseph Peter Kerwin graduated from Fenwick High School, a private school in Oak Park in 1949. He received a Bachelor of Arts degree in Philosophy from the College of Holy Cross, Worcester, Massachusetts in 1953. A Doctor of Medicine degree from the Northwestern University Medical School, Chicago, Illinois in 1957. He completed his internship at the District of Columbia General Hospital in Washington, D.C. At that point, under the Berry Plan, which allowed medical students to be exempt from the draft while completing their school or internship, Kerwin was called up for service. Now, Kerwin had to make a fateful decision about how the remainder of his career would go. Among the choices given, he was offered the last seat in the flight surgeon training at the U.S. Navy School of Aviation Medicine in Pensacola, Florida. Even though it would mean an additional six months of military service, Kerwin was intrigued by the prospect of getting some flying time and signed up. After flight surgeon training, he was officially designated a naval flight surgeon in December of 1958. Then he was assigned to the Marine Corps Air Station at Cherry Point in the Old North State. During his tour, the Marines he served with would allow him to start their fighters and taxi them around. This is when Kerwin really became interested in flying, and he applied for a Navy program in which a select number of flight surgeons were trained to become naval aviators. The goal was that it would provide them a better background for performing their duties. He was accepted to the Navy and transferred from the Naval Reserve to the regular Navy. While assigned to an air wing at Cecil Field, Florida, a couple of friends he had made among the aviators asked him for a favor. 
which was to help filling out the uh, medical portion of their applications to become astronauts. Those two pilots were Alan Bean and Jim Lovell. Kerwin earned the rank of captain in the Navy Medical Corps. He earned his flight surgeon's wings at Beeville, Texas in 1962. He has since logged 4,500 hours flying time. When the Scientist Astronaut Program was announced in 1964, Kerwin's wife asked him if he wanted to try for it. Joe was skeptical of his chances, but finally submitted his application, and the combination of a physician with 2,000 hours of jet flight time proved too good to pass up. Owen Garriott recalled, quote, At our first meeting for the 10-day physical examinations at the School for Aerospace Medicine leading up to scientist-astronaut selection, I had a funny in one of the electroencephalogram tests. The physicians required that I stay up all night as an extra stressor for a repeat test the next morning. New acquaintance and probable competitor Joe Kerwin graciously offered to stay awake about half the night with me just to help me avoid falling asleep. He ended up staying until 5.30 in the morning. It worked, and we were both selected. But those kind of gestures are never forgotten. End quote. Joe Kerwin was the first physician selected for astronaut training. You may recall that Joe was one of the capsule communicators or Capcoms on Apollo 13 in 1970. He was an advocate for the flight crew and was one of the few that knew just how serious the situation was. He was also the one who uttered the words during Apollo 13, Farewell, Aquarius, and we thank you. Kerwin eventually served as science pilot for the Skylab 2 mission, which was the first crewed mission to Skylab. It was launched on May 25th and splashed down on June 22, 1973. With him for the initial activation and 28-day flight qualification operation of the Skylab Orbital Workshop were Pete Conrad, spacecraft commander, and Paul White's pilot. Kerwin was subsequently in charge of the on-orbit branch of the astronaut office, where he coordinated astronaut activity involving rendezvous, satellite deployment and retrieval, and other space shuttle payload operations. Kerwin was part of the NBC broadcasting team for coverage of the launch of STS-1. From 1982 to 1983, Kerwin served as NASA Senior Science Representative in Australia. In this capacity, he served as liaison between NASA's Office of Space Tracking and Data Systems and Australia's Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization. During this time, Kerwin was considered to fly on the mission that would become STS-41C. Then it was known as STS-13. But his assignment in Australia prevented his selection. 
From 1984 through 1987, Kerwin served as Director of Space and Life Sciences at the Johnson Space Center. There, he was responsible for direction and coordination of medical support to operational crewed spacecraft programs, including health care and maintenance of the astronauts and their families. For Direction of Life Services, Supporting Research and Light Experiment Project, and for managing JSC's Earth science and scientific efforts in lunar and planetary research. In 1986, he issued a report on the deaths of the crew killed in the Challenger disaster to Associate Administrator for Spaceflight Richard H. Truly. Kerwin retired from the Navy, left NASA, and joined Lockheed in 1987. At Lockheed, he managed the Extravehicular Systems Project, providing hardware for Space Station Freedom from 1988 to 1990. Along with Paul Cottingham and Ted Christian, he invented the Simplified Aid for EVA Rescue called SAFER. SAFER was first tested for use by spacewalking astronauts on the International Space Station during Space Shuttle Flight STS-64. He then served on the Assured Crew Return Vehicle Team and served as study manager on the Human Transportation Study, a NASA review of future space transportation architectures. In 1994 through 1995, he led the Houston Liaison Group for Lockheed Martin's FGB contract, the procurement of the Russian space tug, which became the first element of the ISS. He served on the NASA Advisory Council from 1990 to 1993. Kerwin joined Systems Research Laboratories in June 1996 to serve as program manager of the System Research Laboratories team which bid to win the medical support and integration contract at the Johnson Space Center. However, the incumbent, Krug Life Sciences, won the contract. But then, to Kerwin's surprise, Krug recruited him to replace its retiring president, T. Wayne Holt. He joined Krug on April 1, 1997, on March 16, 1998, Krug Life Sciences became the Life Sciences Special Business Unit of Wiley Laboratories of El Segundo, California. In addition to his duties at Wiley, Kerwin served on the board of directors of the National Space Biomedical Research Institute as an industry representative. He retired from Wiley in the summer of 2004. In his personal life, Kerwin married Shirley Good of Danville, Pennsylvania in 1960. They had three daughters, Sharon, born 1963, Joanna, born 1966, and Christina, born 1968, and six grandchildren. Kerwin won several awards. The All-Navy Skylab Crew was awarded the Navy Distinguished Service Medal in 1973 from the Secretary of the Navy. 
The three Skylab astronauts were awarded the 1973 Robert J. Collier Trophy for proving beyond question the value of man in future explorations of space and the production of data to benefit to all the people on Earth. Dr. Robert H. Goddard Memorial Trophy was also awarded to the Skylab astronauts. The Skylab crew was awarded AIAA's Haley Astronautics Award for 1974. He was one of the 24 Apollo astronauts who were inducted into the U.S. Astronaut Hall of Fame in 1997. Kerwin is also an author. He co-authored along with fellow astronaut Owen Garriott and writer David Hitt, Homesteading Space, a history of the Skylab program published in 2008, which was heavily used for this episode. Now we have completed our scientist Skylab astronauts, let's move on to the Group 5 rookies. Of all the groups of astronauts selected, the original 19 had the most diverse fates when it came to their eventual spaceflight assignments. Of course, the original 19 was a nod to the Mercury original 7. Anyway, the original 19, nine of them would make their first flights during the Apollo program. Charlie Duke, Ron Evans, Fred Hayes, James Irwin, T.K. Mattingly, Edgar Mitchell, Stuart Rusa, John Swigert, and Alfred Warden. With three of them, Duke, Irwin, and Mitchell, walking on the moon. Four would make their rookie flights during the Skylab program. Jerry Carr, Jack Lausma, Bill Pogue, and Paul Weitz. One during the Apollo-Soyuz test project, Vance Brand. And three would not fly into orbit until the space shuttle began operations. Joe Engel, Don Lynn, and Bruce McCandless. However, Engel had flown to the edge of space on the experimental X-15 plane before joining the astronaut corps. One of the members, Ed Givens, died before flying a mission, and another, John Bull, developed a medical condition that disqualified him from flight status. Group 5 member Paul Weitz, who made his first flight as part of the first Skylab crew, said that he does not remember any indication being made when his class joined the Corps on what their role would be, which he said he could live with. Quote, I can't speak for anyone else, but I just wanted to get an opportunity to fly in space. End quote. Even though no formal promise regarding their role was made, some members of the group had certain expectations. Jack Lausma said, quote, When we were brought aboard, there was no end at Apollo 20. We were going to land on the moon before the end of the decade and were going to explore the moon, and there was no end to the number of Saturn missions there were going to be. The number of Saturn flights, Saturn V's, or the number of landings on the moon. It was going to start with the landing and then it was going to be increased duration. 
staying on the moon for up to a month. And they were going to orbit the moon for two months. I guess that was more of a reconnaissance type thing. End quote. But in truth, the members of the original 19 were competing for missions both with one another and with their predecessors still in the core. A competition made more intense by the cancellation of Apollo missions 18 through 20. Paul Weitz said, quote, I was very much disappointed that the last three missions to the moon were canceled. I thought I had a chance of making one of those missions, end quote. While there may not have been much overt competition among the Group 5 astronauts for the remaining Apollo berths, White said, quote, It became obvious that some of the folks were doing their best to position themselves to punch the right cards to be considered for early flights. But everyone wanted to fly as soon as possible. And I think that no one was consciously considering giving up on Apollo-era flights so that they might get an early shuttle flight, end quote. Though he had been disappointed with the cancellation of the last three Apollo missions, Weitz said that he was pleased with his eventual rookie assignment, saying, quote, I really enjoyed flying Skylab with Pete and Joe, and I thought we did our part to further the benefits of human space research, end quote. Jack Lausma said, quote, I was a little naive. I wasn't a politician. I'd never been in a political organization. I just figured the harder I worked, the better I'd do. That was not good for this particular system, but I was not smart enough to know that. Moreover, I did not know anybody when I came. A lot of the other guys had worked with each other on different projects in the Air Force and things, and I was just kind of a lone ranger. And I was the youngest guy selected, most junior, least experienced. So it seemed as though the people that had more experience were a bit older or had done different things than I had were selected before me, like Fred Hayes was selected for the Lunar Module. Ed Mitchell worked on that. They were senior guys, and Fred was such a competent guy in aviation. So I was just going to do my best and work as hard as I could and see what happened. And if it came to the point where I had to be more overt about this, I would have felt that I'd earned the right to speak up. There was some amount of politics to the system of selection, but for the most part, I felt that Deke Slayton was a fair guy, and I thought he selected the right people for the right job. I felt that everybody there was qualified to handle any mission that would come their way, but I felt that the selections as Deke made them were fair. He could come in and assign maybe two crews for a couple of Apollo flights, assign a backup crew, make a few guys happy and a lot of guys mad. But he would always say, and if you don't like that, 
I will be glad to change places with you. And nobody could refute that. Cause poor old Deke, he still had not flown at all. End quote. Lausma was one of the Group 5 members who reached a point where he was confident he was going to the moon on Apollo 20, only to have it taken away. Upon joining the Corps, Lausma had originally been put on a different track as one of the first members of his class to be assigned to Apollo applications rather than to Apollo Even before he had completed his initial astronaut training, Lausma was tapped to work on an instrument for one of the Lunar Orbit Apollo Applications Project flights that was planned at the time. Lausma came to the astronaut corps from a background in military reconnaissance. Thus, he was a perfect fit for the project which involved using a classified Air Force high-resolution reconnaissance camera attached to an orbiting Apollo capsule to study the surface of the moon. After Lausma had spent a year working on that project, however, the planned mission was canceled and he was back to the beginning. Nevertheless, it seemed he had an angel in his pocket. Fred Hayes, who was the Corps' lead for lunar module testing and checkout, was assigned to the backup crew for Apollo 11, which meant he would then be rotating up to prime crew a few flights later. Under the standard rotation, Hayes would have been lunar module pilot for Apollo 14, but Alan Shepard's return to active flight status bumped the original 14 crew up to Apollo 13. The Corps needed an astronaut to take the lunar module assignment that Hayes had vacated, and at the same time, Lausma needed a new ground assignment. The fit was ideal. While serving as Lunar Module Support Crew for Apollo 9 and 10, Lausma was also spending time in the lander simulator whenever he could. Eventually, Lausma gained 700 hours in the Lunar Module Simulator, plus all the knowledge that went with the systems of how the Lunar Module worked. Al Bean, when he flew, one of the lunar module malfunction procedures revised, and Lausma did that for him. Before the last three Apollo missions were canceled, there was a group of 15 astronauts that all worked together to somehow populate the last three missions, and some of them were astronauts that had flown already, and some of them were not. Lausma said, quote, Once it got to this cadre of 15 guys. I do not remember there being any politics there. I was not involved if there was. I was just really focused on doing the best I could and qualifying on my own. I felt I was ready to do it. I was not a political person. I do not think Deke was much of a political person at all. He was somewhat predictable in that the guys who had been there the longest were going to fly first. And in that group of people, probably the guys that were going to fly first were a little bit more senior, 
militarily speaking, and I was a junior guy. I was 29 years old. That is the way Deked worked. I think Jerry Carr would have flown to the moon before me. Jerry was senior to me in the Marines, so I am not going to fly before him. The way it worked out on Skylab was I ended up flying before Jerry. And to offset that, Deke assigned Jerry to be the commander, not just the ride-along guy on the third Skylab mission. That is the way his mind worked. So, to some extent, he was kind of predictable for people who were coming up through the ranks. He was kind of unpredictable for guys who had already flown. So, there was probably more politics between those guys than there was between me and my friends. Deke never wanted much politics, I don't think. I don't know if I would have been going to the moon or not, but there were three flights there for which I was eligible, and I was a lunar module trained guy, so I thought I was definitely going on one of them. End quote. But of course, it was not to be. The final three planned Apollo missions were canceled, and with them went the hopes of Lausma and the others that they might reach the moon. With those missions eliminated, Skylab was the next possible ticket to space for the unflown members of Group 5 and their Group 4 predecessors. But even after the nine Skylab astronauts were told they had been assigned to the flights, some still had a sense of uncertainty, particularly due to the cancellation of the last three Apollo flights. Lausma said, quote, The Skylab missions were always threatened to not fly for a long, long time. It was never sure until the last six months or a year that the Skylab was going to get to fly. There were those that said, Let's save the money and put it into shuttle. So I always felt like I could lose that Skylab mission, even when I was training for it. Somehow, I found out that there was probably going to be a flight with the Russians, and probably Tom Stafford was going to command that. Maybe it was common knowledge, maybe it wasn't. But I decided that if Skylab does not fly, I was going to be ready for the next thing. So, I went while I was training for Skylab and took one semester course in the Russian language took the exams and documented it and all that sort of thing, turned it in with my records and said, here you go, Deke, in case you're looking for a guy to go on the Russian flight. Well, I've got a little head start on the language thing. Turns out that before we went on the Skylab mission, I knew I was going to be on the backup crew for the Russian flight. It did not matter then because Skylab was going so Backup was okay, but I remember being concerned about Skylab not flying, end quote. Lausma said he is frequently asked if he felt that Skylab was a poor consolation prize for the lunar flight he missed out on, going on a space station mission instead of going to the moon. He replied, quote, Heck no, I didn't. 
I thought any ride was a good ride, and I felt that there were not that many rides to go around. So this was going to be all right. But moreover, we were doing things that had not been done before. This is what I think the lure was for most of our guys. To do things that had not been done. All the things that Apollo did, we became operationally competent in. We knew we could fly in space. The question was, could we survive in space for long periods of time in weightlessness? And moreover, could we do useful work? Skylab proved that this could be done. And it also demonstrated that EVAs in zero gravity were doable if you were properly trained and had the right equipment and had been properly prepared. And we did not really know that either. End quote. While in-space EVAs were carried out successfully in the final Gemini flights and then in Apollo, Lausma stated that they were nothing like the spacewalks performed during Skylab. The Skylab spacewalks were much longer, and unlike the earlier spacewalks which were carefully planned and prepared, Skylab's EVAs usually involved responding to situations as they occurred. Lausma said, quote, we were the first real test of whether you could have a useful space laboratory and you could do scientific experiments of all sorts that we never did in Apollo and get useful data back and investigate things that had not been investigated before. I didn't get to go to the moon, but I got to do something which was one of a kind, first of a kind to demonstrate all of those things that we were wanting to know and had to learn to go to the next step. And that was the one that we're going to take in the next couple of decades. From that point of view, I think Skylab is NASA's best-kept secret. We learned so many things that we didn't know, and we did so many things for the first time. End quote. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 398 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Skylab, The Astronauts Part 3, Kerwin and Lausma. I have a big announcement in case you haven't heard. We are coming up on the 400th episode of the podcast if everything goes according to plan, episode 400 will be released on October 20th. As you may recall, I usually do something special when we reach these milestones. Since this is such a major event, we are doing something different that is very special for the first time ever in the long and storied history of the podcast. We will have a live YouTube 
question and answer session in celebration of the 400th episode. Believe it or not, I do have a YouTube channel. It's called, strangely enough, Space Rocket History. You can easily access it by either of two ways, or there's more than two, really. Go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, look at the right side of the page, directly below the orange Donate button and the Patreon box, and you will find it. Click the small SRH logo in the upper left corner of the video. Do not click anywhere else and you will be taken to my channel. If that doesn't work for you, you can search on Google using the term Space Rocket History on YouTube. When I did that, my channel was the second result. Make sure you subscribe and click on the notification bell. I also posted the link on my Patreon page and it is on Facebook and Twitter. Currently, there is one video on the channel. Feel free to watch it. It was a SpaceX launch back in 2017 that Mrs. SRH and I enjoyed. I had 175 subscribers last episode at the YouTube channel, and now I have 230. So there has been a little bit of interest because I didn't know whether this is going to work out or not, but there is a little bit of interest at least. So please subscribe, and that will show me you're interested in attending the video. We, that is Mrs. SRH and I, plan to do the live video tentatively scheduled on October 21st at 8 p.m. That would be 5 p.m. Pacific. We will be taking questions that you send us by email in advance of the video, or if we have time, some by the live chat. So, if you have a question for us, it would be great if you would email that now. I think I have around 30 questions so far. We will try to answer as many questions as possible. Okay, just to review, here's what I need you to do. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. Go ahead and email your questions to me now. The email is spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Mark your calendar and come to the live 400th episode celebration on YouTube. Continuing with announcements, our next episode should be released on or about October 6th. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 217 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. If you're so inclined, my Twitter handle is working again. It is the same as it used to be, at Space Rocket Hist. And you can follow me on Facebook if you like. And you can also keep up with me on Patreon. The link is patreon.com slash Space Rocket History. Where in addition to the episodes, I sometimes post extra things. Had a few afterthoughts. First, I would like to apologize for the mispronunciations. Sadly, the Artemis has not launched yet. I think the new launch date is scheduled for September 27th. It would be great if we could launch in September. But these things are brand new and it does take time. Obviously, they're being very careful with this launch. 
For one reason, because that's one expensive rocket right there. Okay, on the episode, I had a lot of quotes from Jack Lausma, and I gave quite a bit of biographical information about him, but I'm not finished with his biography. My plan is to finish his biography first thing on the next episode, so don't worry that I didn't do a full biography on Jack Lausma. I'm going to finish it. Part of the reason I'm doing all these biographies together is because how their experiences, the astronauts' experience, were intertwined in being selected for missions and training. Now, I debated whether to put in some of the Group 5 astronaut info for those that did not fly on Skylab. But I found it interesting, and I thought you would too, particularly how and why certain astronauts were chosen for each assignment. I think it must have been pretty devastating for Lausma to get 700 hours in the lunar module simulator and have his flight canceled. Now that would be a bad day. Folks, sometimes people give me things. And you know, I really appreciate it. It's usually some space paraphernalia. But this past fortnight, I got a wonderful gift. Terry B. sent me a medallion that contains metal that traveled through space on Skylab. This is the real thing, folks. I was overwhelmed to receive such a gift. This will be a family heirloom passed down for generations. I want to thank Terry from the bottom of my heart. I will always keep that medallion. I've already showed it to just about everybody I know, so uh, they're probably getting tired of seeing it, but... (laughs) I've showed everybody. I'm I'm pretty proud of that thing. (laughs) For those interested in our personal life, the house basement cracks continue to worsen, which is not good news. But we do have a new problem, and that, strangely enough, is getting time in the podcast studio. Mrs. SRH and I share the office, and now that she is well into her second week of teaching, We're having a bit of a scheduling conflict with the office. She needs it to teach her virtual classes, and I need it to do the podcast. I have considered moving the studio into the camper, but that is problematic and definitely not very quiet. Then I thought about going into the basement, but boy, that has some issues too. So... But right now, we are working it out by scheduling. Now, that means that on some uh, fortnights, I may have to release the podcast one day later than usual. But we'll see how it all works out. Over the past fortnight, we received several donations and pledges. And I would like to thank Terry B., who donated at the NASA level. Debbie T. from the Flatlands of Cambridgeshire, England, donated at the Mercury level and earned a satellite emoji. Peter W. from Germany donated at the Orion level and earned a Nova emoji. 
Andrew W. increased his pledge on Patreon and moved to the Orion level. Devin M. pledged on Patreon at the Salute Skylab level. Our total Patreon donors are at 244. That's about seven lower than last month, and that number is accurate. Of course, we're trying to reach that elusive goal of 300 by the end of 2022. Have we ever reached it? No. Will we reach it this year? No, probably not. Our total donors for 2022 have reached 351 with an overall goal of 500 for the year. We had a pretty good month in August, finally. But quite frankly, this year has been a dog year. Financial support is seriously lagging behind previous years. So especially for those who have never supported the podcast. For those of you who are supporting the podcast, I say sincere thanks. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking mainly to those who have listened for years and never supported the podcast. If you are enjoying this podcast and you want it to continue, it would be a good idea to fund it. So, please, if you can and you're financially able, consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Or, if you would like to donate by mail, which works great for me. Please use my new permanent address, which has been active for over a year now. If you don't know what that is, please email me and I'll give it to you. Please make your check out to Michael Annis. And my email address is spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. The winner for this episode's drawing will get the choice of the rare and beautiful SRH archive magnet, the regular magnet, or two stickers, or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Galen Anderson. Galen Anderson, if you would email us spacerockethistory at gmail.com Tell us your address and your SRH prize preference. We'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 351 of you who have contributed thus far in 2022. My sources for this episode were NASA, Skylab's America's Space Station by David Shaler, Homesteading Space, The Skylab Story by David Hitt, Flickr, The Internet Archive, and... Wikipedia. And that's all we have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 399 posted on or before October 6th. Don't forget your homework assignments. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. Go ahead and email me your questions now and mark your calendar and come to the live 400th episode celebration on YouTube. So long for now.